0: Welcome to Cars Yeah! Show number 783. What's been transformational for me is finding a way to combine my own interests and my own passions with the service of others. And that's what's so exciting about the position that I'm in now. So I think if we all take what turns us on in this life and what we're interested in and find a way to serve others at our highest level possible, the rewards just start falling into uh, into our lap at that point and things really start to feel different.
1: Hey, Scott, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm ready, Mark. Let's go. Scott Dishman is the Executive Director of the BMW Car Club of America Foundation, overseeing a nationwide car control program for teenagers and the largest BMW museum and archive in the Americas. Scott spent 21 years in corporate marketing and brand strategy, starting with Automobile Magazine and eventually serving as the Director of Communications for the $3 billion Michelin consumer brand in the United States. In 2006, Scott left the corporate world to work on behalf of children at risk and led the launch of The Family Effect. Today, in addition to his role at BMW, Scott serves on the board of several philanthropic organizations and children's causes, and in 2015, Scott was elected to receive the Ethics in Action Award by the Rutland Institute for Ethics at Clemson University. He's one of only three people to receive that award to date. Congratulations for that, Scott. So today, I have told you listeners just a little bit about Scott. Could you take a moment and share a little bit more about your career and your passion for automobiles?
0: Sure. Well, you know, my career has taken some interesting turns. I'm one of those people that, um, you know, you can break my career down into probably three or four different uh, segments. But cars have been near the center of that for a long time. You know, one of my first jobs out of college was the early days of Automobile Magazine, and that was back in the days of David E. Davis. Um, Ended up at Michelin much later, as you mentioned, and now back into the uh, automotive world again. So it's a lot of fun when you can combine um, things you're naturally interested in with your job and your paycheck. It's uh, it's the best way to live.
1: Well, it is the secret sauce to life, and you've certainly figured that out. And that's what Carjia yeah is all about: inspiring automotive enthusiasts. And today, Scott is going to inspire us, I'm sure. And as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote or a mantra. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. And it's a really nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Carjia. Yeah. So, Scott, take the wheel.
0: Well, I got to tell you, in the first half of my career. I uh, was just a working stiff, just like anybody else. But there's been some reading and a quote that helped me kind of realign the second half of my career, and it's been transformational. And this particular quote is from Martin Luther King, and it says, anybody can be great because anybody can serve. And what took me out of the corporate world in 2006 was a desire to combine my interests and my skills with serving others. And that has just been transformational for me. And I think, you know, what King was getting at there is that you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be highly educated. If you're willing to serve others, um, you can be a great person. And if you align that with your interests, then that's uh, all the better.
1: Absolutely and that's really interesting when I look back at your careers and these different moves that you've made. Philanthropic notion is in your skull for sure because I look at what you've done with you started with helping children and what you're up to today which also helps teenagers with driving skills and so forth and pulling this all together you again have really figured out the secret sauce of life haven't you?
0: You know, it took a while, but I feel like I've uh, made progress there, right? Every day's a school day. We all try to get better as we get along, but I think I'm a lot smarter guy than I was when I was 25 and 35 and maybe even 45.
1: (laughs) Well, you certainly have figured it out. And you're definitely an inspiration to many of us out there. And I love that quote by King. And it really makes sense. As you get older in life, and I'm a little older than you, you realize the importance of helping people and how that makes you feel really good. And I've talked to friends before who are angry about things. And I've said, you know what? Stop and think about what you're grateful for. It's impossible to be mad when you're grateful. And I think serving provides that gratefulness in your your heart and soul.
0: It does. And uh, I found for me that it was transformational. You know, when I when I aligned my career interests with my desire to serve others, whether it was in automotive or outside of automotive, everything changes, right? The mm-hmm. color of the sky changed, the way you walk down the street changes, the way you pop out of bed in the morning changes. And this latest gig, I have to tell you, I never would have thought that I could combine my geek love for cars and design and the automotive world with the ability to serve folks at the same time. That there is a the secret
1: sauce. Absolutely. And we're going to learn a little bit more about what you're doing there but first i want to go back in time a little bit here and have you share a story that instigated your passion for cars is there a pivotal moment in your life when you realize that you were indeed a car guy
0: Yeah, there was. My dad was uh, was a car guy. He used to hot rod Model Ts in Dallas. (laughs) Cool. Back in the 1930s before he went off to uh, fly uh, B-17s over Europe during World War II. Wow. But when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, he had kind of lost that hot rod nature and was mechanically minded, but just around the big family cars, right? So at our house, we just had those giant floaty American sedans, you know, mm-hmm. and they never really uh, held much interest for me. I'd help my dad, you know, change an alternator or do some engine work every once in a while, but the car itself never really excited me. And then I went off to the University of Texas in 1981, and I stayed in a private dorm during my freshman year, and behind the dorm was an alley, and the alley was the back door of several businesses that were um, aligned along the main drag across from University of Texas. And one of these stores was a gentleman clothing store. And two or three days a week, when I would come down from the dorm, there would be a bright red Ferrari 308 GTB parked behind that men's store, And I had never seen a car like that. This is 1981. And I had really just been exposed to my brother's and my father's interest in cars. And they were just, like I said, these big floaty American things. I had never seen something that sleek, that low, that angled, that purposely (laughs) built before and spent a lot of time staring at that thing. Well, one day I, I went up to i saw the car i went up to my dorm room i got a camera because i want to take some pictures of this car because i didn't know how long it was going to be hanging around you know so i'm in the alley and i'm taking a picture of this car and boom the door to the the back door to this men's store opens and it's the owner he looks at me says you're taking pictures of my car and i said yeah i've been admiring this thing for the last month and he looked at me and said well would you like a ride <laughs> so you know of course yes 18 year old College freshman, I, I wasn't even sure what I was looking at with that car, but I damn sure knew I wanted to ride in it. So he puts me in the passenger seat, and you know Austin is a is a hilly town. It's a beautiful place. He takes me on a ride through the twisties up in the hills, and I got to tell you, I did not know. Before that, that cars were even capable of handling in that way. Yeah, the car was on rails. The cornering was just unbelievable, and he was explaining to me the suspension geometry and you know the midships placement of the V8 and all of that. And that was the day that I understood that cars could be something other than the big floaty American things that my dad was driving around. And that's that's really the starting point for me.
1: Oh my gosh, what a nice journey you just took us on! (laughs) What a way to be indoctrinated into the car culture. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that must have been amazing. Well, Scott, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood a little bit and ask you to share a big challenge or even a big failure that you faced along the way in your career. But of course, the most important part of this is not so much the situation, although I want you to take us there, but what did it teach you? What did you get out of it? So tell us how that experience helped you gain even more momentum in your life and your career.
0: I think the biggest challenge for me was my professional career as I was coming through the early 2000s. You know, it took me a while to get past that time and look back on it to understand what the problem was. But I was just not feeling passionate about what I was doing. Right. I had a job. I was doing my job well. At that time, I was at Michelin, and I was um, hanging around some pretty cool car people, but I was also spending 90% of my time in a meeting room, you know, in a conference room somewhere, and was just not feeling the passion to be popped out of bed every day and go do something great. And looking back on it, I didn't really understand what my why was. You know, everybody who, mm. uh, who is successful that I found really understands their why right? Why do they pop out of bed every day? What is it that drives them? What are they trying to accomplish in their lives? Other than going to that job that day and getting that to-do list done, what's the why behind all of that? And I didn't really understand my why until I Started doing um, some research into the nonprofit world, and at that time, I was doing a lot of volunteer work around children's issues like you had mentioned before. And that really started to ring a bell with me, and my larger why just started to become serving others. You know, uh, Rather than just serving a corporate goal or dropping a couple of extra quarters into the pocket of a shareholder, I wanted to find ways to help people. And that began a journey for me back in 2006 that's just been transformative, right? So the challenge for me was just how do I – how do I get myself past these mental roadblocks I'm having with the way that my day and my career and my, my work year goes and, and make it into something that's more meaningful for me? Because right? mm-hmm. I think when things are meaningful for us, that provides your, your, that's your internal fire, right? It's your right. motivation. It's what drives us. Um, no one has to push you to do a great job when you're on fire for it yourself, and <laughs> I just was not really feeling that. And so uh, that was the challenge, but it led to some fantastic times just after that.
1: Well, absolutely and that you've hit on such an important point. There's a great talk, TED talk by Simon Sinek about why finding your why, which you probably I have watched that. Yeah, I wrote a blog about it on my weekly blog here at Cars Yeah, but you know, my takeaway here is the importance of that why. So, what's one thing that you could share with our listeners if someone out there's listening and they haven't quite figured that why out yet? What what got you to that I know you talk about getting to that transitional point, not being that happy with what you're doing, but what could you offer them so that they could start to find their why?
0: Well, every journey is very individual, right? So all I can really do is talk about my own experience. But I can tell you that for me, it really just involved exposing yourself to a lot of different things and really listening for what rings your bell. You know, everybody's got some some things that are really going to speak to them in a very central or or core way. For me um, at that time, and I'm still interested in doing this work. But for me at that time, it was really all about neglected and abused kids. Right. I just Mm -hmm. didn't think it was fair that they were leading the early lives that they were leading. I believe that I can make a difference there. But what I noticed, and this is the key, is that when I was reading about that work, when I was um, attending board meetings, when I was doing my volunteer work, whatever activity I was doing in that area, there was a bell in my head that was ringing, and it was unmistakable. And I really learned to listen to that bell to understand when something is really addressing something within you that needs to be addressed. You need to know how to listen for that. And so I was able to recognize that little bell ringing in the head. I started to do my homework um, on the issues that I was uh, interested in, I got more and more useful in that world. That made me have some impact. I started to believe in in what I was able to do there, and that led to me just kind of cutting the corporate tethers in 2006 and leaving a corner office at Michelin and um, taking the end of a conference room table at a at an agency for neglected <laughs> children. Right, but I couldn't have been happier to be there because yeah, yeah. Um, I was finding ways to align the things that I was interested in with my daily activities. And that's a simple equation, but I think a lot of us have not quite figured that out yet, right?
1: Oh, We've all yes. got
0: things that we're interested in, but we don't necessarily align our daily activities with the things we're interested in. And it's not always easy, right. but I was willing to take that risk, and you know, luckily my – I would, listen, I was 42 years old. I was at the height of my earning power. I had two young children at home. Um, my wife is, uh, is a saint for allowing me <laughs> to make that decision at that time. Yeah. But luckily, luckily, it's turned out well.
1: Wow. What a story. What an inspirational story. And I loved the quote out of this story. Listen to your bell. I think I'm going to write that one down. That's a very good analogy of trying to hear that inner voice and what it's telling you. Wonderful story, Scott. Absolutely spectacular. And yeah, having a spectacular spouse who is supportive of the things that you do, and I have one of those as well, is oh so important. It certainly is. Yes. Let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. You've alluded to this question or the answer to this question earlier, talking about a career aha moment. Certainly listening to your bell was an aha moment for you. But is there one particular aha moment that stands out that you'd like to share?
0: Well, I don't know if there's one moment other than, you know, once I had made the decision to kind of change the way that I work and and decide to kind of walk a different professional path and one that focused on addressing the ringing of my own bell, right, which was serving others. Man, it just everything became so easy, Mark. I mean, (laughs) popping out of bed in the morning, working a long day and never looking at the clock. You're shocked that it's five or six in the evening and it's time to go home. You're shocked that it's Friday afternoon and the weekend is here because you feel like you just got started. I mean, I I feel like I have not, and I, I honestly mean this, I feel like I have not Really worked a job since 2006 because a lot of the things that I do, I would do anyway. Even if I wasn't being paid, I'm having so much fun and we're helping people and making impact. And, you know, my board of trustees does me a favor of putting some money in my account every two weeks so I can pay my mortgage, but somehow it doesn't feel like a job. Yeah. And reaching that point, I think, can be transformational for everybody because if you feel that way, you start to do some pretty great work, by the way, because you're so on fire for what you're doing and you have so much internal motivation that it just drives you to do that extra homework, take that extra trip, you know, spend that extra hour because it's fun for you to do. And then um, success really starts to come.
1: Finding that career that you don't feel like you have to take a vacation from. There you go. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. Well, how about a Prouders career moment? It sounds like you've had quite a few, but is there one that really stands out for you?
0: Uh, yeah, there's one or two. I have to say that in 2015, I think you mentioned this in the introduction. Yes. The, the Rutland Institute for Ethics came to me and said that they were going to award me the Ethics in Action Award. And they planned a gala. You know, there were, I think, 280, 300 people at this gala. They had former governors, former Secretary of Education, former uh, U.S. ambassadors. Wow. Um, all there to honor my work for children, right? Mm-hmm. And it was all about my my decision to leave the corporate world and the things that we had gotten done. And we had, by that point, grown one of the most successful ch- children's charities in the state. I have to say that that was a, a proud moment for me. And I, honestly, I think the best part, Mark, was my two daughters were at that event. And watching them watch their father be honored yeah, in this oh, way Wow, was something that was... Heartwarming. That, that was a great take-home moment for me because, you know, I love my dad. I was proud of my dad. And, of course. And uh, I, I, I'm hoping that that evening is going to be something that they carry with them for a long time.
1: No doubt, an inspiration to look up to to say, you know what, we're going to serve like you, Dad. Awesome, congratulations! And they're, and they're
0: starting to do that. Thank you. And then I think the other the other moment is is that I'm I'm in it right now, right? That I have somehow been blessed or the planets have aligned in such a way that I've been able to take this desire to serve others and combine it with a love for all things automotive. I mean, we'll talk about it later, but yeah. we're doing some fantastic things with the street survival program. And I'm oh, yeah. just very proud that my um, my path has led me to this place. I'm in a very proud moment right now.
1: Absolutely. And we will talk about that in a few minutes here. I know BMW's done a great job with my kids went through that driving school here in the Pacific Northwest when they started driving. And uh, my daughter drove a mini cooper my son drove a bmw their first car so uh, (laughs) i've driven bmws for decades so uh, my wife the same so we're a bmw family here well done (laughs) even though i've got a little passion for porsche you've got
0: a little passion for porsche just a little bit
1: yeah absolutely (laughs) well let's go back in time again and talk about your first really special car is there a vehicle that really stands out for you and maybe you could share a memory you have about that car
0: Sure, sure. Well, my life has been one of uh, kind of on and off uh, with cool cars in the garage. You know, I lived in Manhattan for 13 oh, years. Oh, yeah,
1: right? not too many cars there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> not well, you know, it costs more to park and insure a car there in a month than it does to actually make a car. So I had a period of enthusiast interruptus, I like to call, (laughs) during Manhattan, where I just was not able to do that. But um, when we left Manhattan and I finally had a little bit of money and I had a house and I had a garage, um, we had babies, so I couldn't go spend a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I bought an absolutely cherry um, 1967 MGB GT Coupe.
1: Ooh, nice.
0: And I just adored that car. And it needed... A little work here and there, and I was really cutting my teeth on this thing. This is about 1992, 93, 94. It was my daily driver, right? I'm in Connecticut, by the way. So it's my daily
1: driver. Oh, my gosh.
0: In the winter, yeah. right? Oh, my. And, uh, you know, little windshield wipers that are about six inches long, so uh-huh. you get a hard rain. And, oh, my gosh. I, I, I had my daughter car seat kind of squeezed into the middle, passenger seat, as I would take her to her um, her babysitter during the day. But I love that car. One particular memory I have with that thing is completely rewiring it in the middle of the winter. <laughs> it was, you know, the Lucas Gremlins were quite present in that car. Yeah. And it just need it just needed a new harness, right? Mm-hmm. And this is before the days of the web really coming up with, you know, useful enthusiast forums and yeah, guys No
1: YouTube. <laughs>
0: Right, there was no YouTube yet, there was no forum. So I really had to figure it out on my own. I had never done anything like that, rewiring a car. And obviously that's a much simpler car to rewire than something these days. Yeah, I mean, imagine you you buy one harness and it comes as one piece.
1: I right? know. Crazy. But I had
0: never done it before and and uh, it was the middle of winter. I remember being out there several evenings where it was, you know, 15 degrees outside. This Ugh. is an unheated garage and I'm out there with little space heaters and frozen fingers. But you know what? When I finished that job and when I Said my prayer and turned the key, the baby fired up, and I had done everything correct. And every connector was exactly where it was supposed to be. I was really proud of myself. Yeah,
1: Yeah. you should be, (laughs) most definitely. Yeah, MG's have a special place in my heart, too. I really wanted one when I was in high school, and my father, with his wisdom, said, well, do you want a car you're going to be working on all the time or a car you can drive all the time? (laughs) So I opted for a Carmagia instead. Yep, That was my poor man's Porsche, but uh, I love those little MGs. Well, how about a vehicle that you've let go that you wish you had back in your garage? Is there one of those?
0: Yeah, I wish I had that car back. That one, yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, that was the car that you know, I, I mentioned that I really started to get into this world back with that first Ferrari, and I had, I had worked for Automobile Magazine maybe eight or nine years before I had the MG, but I was living in Manhattan, so I couldn't really address the passion for having a, what I could afford as a cool car, right? So that was really the one I really cut my teeth on. I mean, I knew every nut and bolt. I knew every wire, every connector, everything in that car I had touched or rubbed or changed or, or fixed. And so, man, you, if you get that deep with any car, if you You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and your listeners know, too. That's when you really form a bond and a connection with a car. Absolutely. And that one, there was a time in my life when we moved to South Carolina. We had then had two babies. I had a father-in-law that was living with us and really unhealthy. And um, I just didn't have time to keep up with it, you know, Mm just kind of keep it running. And so there was a guy who wanted to pay me too much money for it. And I let it go. And I have regretted it since about three days after I sold it. Yeah. I'd love to have that car back.
1: I've got a few of those stories as well, but I understand the time to let her go. Well, one of these days you'll get another one, I'm sure. Well, let's talk about today and what has you really excited and fired up. As the executive director of the BMW Car Club of America Foundation, what are you guys doing there? what What is it that uh, our listeners should pay attention to that you're providing for uh, people out there who love cars?
0: Well, so there's there's two great things that we're doing. One is quite BMW-specific, and the other really is not. But first, let me just set the stage for what this foundation is. This foundation is the philanthropic expression of the 70,000-plus paid members of the BMW Car Club of America. Not a lot of your listeners probably know that this car club is the largest single-mark enthusiast car club in the world, 70,000 members, 68 chapters across the country, um, each having its own events, driving, uh, driving events, um, club racing, you know – annual gatherings, all sorts of great stuff. The foundation is set apart from the club. We've got our own board of directors, and there's really two things that we're working on. Um, Number one is street survival, and I mentioned this to you before. We are training teenage drivers in high-level car control. Last year, we trained 2,800 teens in 106 different clinics from coast to coast, so we're starting to have some real impact there. But we are not teaching these kids how to drive, and that's important. We are teaching them how to avoid emergency situations. Mark, did did you teach your to your kids to drive?
1: Well, I did a unique thing with my kids. The school that they went to when they became 15, which in this state you can get a learner's permit, was about a 30-minute drive from our home. You had to drive on a freeway over a a bridge, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, down side streets with a lot of cross traffic. So what my wife and I did was we bought our kids cars when they were 15. They drove to school every morning. Then I drove to work. My wife drove to pick them up. And they drove home. So by the time they got their license, they each had over 3,500 miles under their belt, which yeah. was incredibly invaluable. Very different from my experience, which was one week with the gym coach sitting in the back of a car with two other people getting yelled at for driving too fast. And yeah, then- I had the same <laughs> experience
0: that you did. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So what you guys are doing, and as I mentioned, both my kids went through a driving school at Pacific Raceway when they, and again, it wasn't driving, it was driving avoidance. That's what the whole thing was about.
0: And that's what that question was about. That's what that question was about, is that when we teach our kids to drive as parents, um, we teach them the basics, we teach them how to drive safely, but neither you nor I are going to teach our kid what to do when they go into a spin at 65 miles an hour on a busy freeway. Exactly. Right? We're not going to teach them that. We're not going to teach them what to do when you put two wheels off onto a low shoulder at 70 miles an hour. How do you not overcorrect, shoot across four lanes and kill everybody? Right, Right? Right. This is important stuff. And this is the the moments in which kids die, right? They die because they've got a car up at speed. Something happens in front of them. They're reacting. The car is thrown out of balance, and they don't know how to recover the car. Mm -hmm. That's when a kid dies, either that or distraction, right? So street survival really focuses on that moment. So we bring kids in. We insist they drive the car they drive every day because that's the car that they need to learn this stuff in. And they spend the entire day, usually a Saturday one-on-one with an instructor who's sitting in the passenger seat, who's taking them through about eight or nine different exercises, all designed to do one thing, and that is to throw the car out of balance so that we can then teach the kid how to recover the car. And it's incredible to see the progress that they make over the course of of a Saturday. You know, Mm -hmm. they come in on the Saturday morning. They don't want to be there. They've been pulled out of bed too early. (laughs) They look at all these, you know, old men in in yellow polo shirts, and they, they wonder what they're doing there. But by lunchtime, man, they're hooting and they're hollering. They're having a great time. Yeah. They never thought they'd be able allowed to do that in a car, first of all, and secondly, they're really, uh, they're really improving their game. But then, you know, in the afternoon, we kind of throw them off a little bit. If we've got um, someone who's really mastered an exercise, you know, they've done it nine or ten times and they're doing it really well and they're doing it at high speed, that's when we'll throw in distraction, right? And we'll yes. say, okay. Okay, Timmy, you're doing this perfectly, and you've done it perfectly five times in a row. Now I want you to take your cell phone... And hold it up to your ear. You don't, <laughs> yes. you don't need to you don't need to turn it on. You don't even need to speak. Just hold it up to your ear. Now go do that exercise again. And guess what? Cones are flying everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean and, and he's shocked. <laughs> yeah. He's shocked that he wasn't able to pull that off. And so we take him through all the exercises and, and introduce different types of distraction and that's very humbling for them. They assume that they can pull it off perfectly and they can't get anywhere near perfect. So anyway, the growth of street survival is a priority for us. Um, as I mentioned, we trained almost 3,000 kids last year. We want to get that somewhere closer to 10,000 kids a year. It's vitally important work, and um, it's successful work when we can when we can get it done, so we're looking to grow that. The other piece, which is super fun, is that we are developing a seven-acre um, home campus for the BMW Car Club of America membership here in Greer, South Carolina. So we've got a seven-acre rectangle that's tucked into a corner of the BMW Performance Center. This is where they have M schools, customer deliveries. Polished skid pads, all of that stuff. There's another um, performance center out in Thermal, California. We're tucked up right against that, so you can stand in our parking lot or, or sit in my office and see and hear Mike Renner and all those BMW drivers just <laughs> blast past all day long. So that's Woo-hoo. a lot of fun. We're also directly across the street from BMW's largest facility on the globe. This is where they make all X vehicles except for X1. Factory across the street pumps out about 1,500 cars a day, um, 75% which get exported off the coast. So we're right in the middle of BMW land. And on this um, this seven acres, we're going to create the home campus for the 70,000 members of the CCA. And starting about three years ago, the trustees, before they hired me, bought an old pharmaceutical warehouse. It's about 50 15,000 square feet. And believe it or not, this building is already the largest BMW museum and archive in the Americas. We've got about 45,000 items in this building. Mark. Oh my gosh. What, race cars to race engines to memorabilia to a operating manual for a 1939 airplane engine to wiring manuals for early cars. 45,000 items are here. We just opened our first big public exhibition uh, a couple of Fridays ago on May 19th. We've got Heroes of Bavaria, 75 years of BMW motorsport here. 22 uh, historic race cars in the building, ranging from 1939 to 2014. We've got the BMW 328 Roadster that won the first Grand Prix at Zandvoort in 1939, all the way up to an RLL um, C4
1: GTLM. Oh, I've got to come visit you.
0: You, you. you do. And then everything in between, by the way. So the Le Mans winning V12 LMR, the racing CSLs, we've got Formula One, racing 2002s. It's a ridiculously cool exhibition. Our opening event on May 19th was sold out at 400 people, and we're going to have everything here through August. So developing this campus as kind of a BMW geek fest or playground for um, members of the CCA is item number two, and then Street Survival, the driving program is item number one. Those Uh. are the projects.
1: Wow. You know, it's just spectacular. And I'll tell our listeners, as I mentioned, my kids went through your program way back. And my daughter, I watched her on a freeway once do something that I'm – well, she told me it came from that school where she darn near would have been killed. She was in a Mini Cooper. I was behind her in a different car. L.A. traffic, very busy, tight traffic, and a huge semi started to come over into her lane. Mm. And she was about middle of that truck, literally – would have crushed that little car. And what she did, the maneuver she pulled off without hitting the car to her left, heavy braking, maneuver, swerve, all this stuff, while on the horn, (laughs) I'll add. And my heart went in my throat. And when we got off the freeway, I just went oh my gosh, I thought I was going to see you die. And she looked at me and said, dad, driving school, I could do it. I mean, she was just like, not even, you know, she was a little startled, but I was more upset when my hands were shaking. But uh, I'm sure they were. Yeah.
0: One of the the things we teach these kids, um, and this goes for adults too, is, you know, it sounds simple, but never stop driving the car, right? If you're in a bad situation, don't just let it happen. Take control, be deliberate, never stop driving the car. And it sounds like that's what she did.
1: Well, in the comment she made, which will make you laugh, she goes, I was just worried you were going to run into the back of me when I locked up my brakes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I to
0: make sure you were paying attention. Yeah,
1: I was paying Oh, my gosh. My eyes got really big. So, Well, it's absolutely spectacular what you guys are doing there. I have got to come and pay you a visit. Oh, my gosh. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the last two X5s we've had came out of that plant that my wife drives. And uh, mm-hmm. I drive an M3. And like I said, my son is a BMW driver. My daughter still has – she now has her second Mini Cooper. So, uh, yeah, we're – we're uh, we're charging the the cause for you here, so happy to help. Good, good. <laughs> yes. Well, here's a very introspective question for you, Scott. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be, and why?
0: Well, I got to tell you, I think anybody who saw um, the Indy 500 this week would like to be Scott Dixon's Indy car. (laughs) Holy
1: holy moly.
0: Can you believe
1: that? That was was horrifying.
0: A machine that is that beautiful, that fast, yet that capable of protecting its driver Mm -hmm. in that kind of situation has got to be incredible. However, if I was going to be one car, and I gave this some thought, and this car is actually sitting here in our building right now, which is probably why I'm admiring it so much. Yeah. Um, and if you ask me this next month, maybe it'd be a different one. But the BMW V12 LMR mm. that won Le Mans in 1999, yeah. I think I would like to be that car. Well. That is – it is such a sleek and slippery, perfect intersection of form and function. If your listeners look this up, it's an open cockpit prototype car, um, really wide, really low, has one of the most kind of aerodynamically perfect pinched rear ends I've ever seen. And I got to sit in the car to do steering and brakes as we took it off the trailer to bring it into the museum. (laughs) Nice. It's just what I like about it is that it's just a really beautiful intersection of engineering at its highest levels Mm -hmm. with um, just really smooth beauty yeah form and the form and function right which i'm really interested in i want to in my life i try to to serve at the highest functions i can to to serve other people and 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 intersect them with my interests and you know this particular job is very much about form, because any time you're spending a lot of time around cars and design, you're you're interested in the form. Right. But that particular car, at least for me this week, is just the perfect intersection of all those things that I try to be in my own life. So I think that's going to be my selection.
1: Very, very nice. Oh, yeah, what a special ride. And AutoArt, a few years ago, made a whole series of BMW art cars, and one of them is that vehicle Where they asked artist Jenny Holzer to do some creative work on it. And I love one of her lines. Protect me from what I want. is right across the front nose of that car. So nice choice. Nice choice. Well, Scott, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah! sponsors. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. What's the worst thing for your car's interior? No, it's not that milkshake the kid spilled in the back seat. It's the sun. Harmful UV rays cook your automobile's interior hour after hour when it's parked outside, even on a cloudy day. What's the solution? Covercraft sunscreens. They protect your dash, seats, and interior finishes from those damaging UV rays while keeping the interior temperature tolerable, even on the hottest summer days. No more painfully sizzling seats and steering wheels for you. They unfold quickly and easily install, stay where you put them, and are custom pattern for an exact fit. The foam core acts as a cooling insulator, and you can get yours in different colors and finishes. And they even fold up easily and store under your seat or on the floor. I've used Covercraft sunscreens for years And they are a fast and easy solution that protect my beloved cars when they're not in the garage. Learn more and order yours at Covercraft.com. Want to protect your entire vehicle? Get a car cover from Covercraft. They have those too. That's Covercraft.com. And tell them Mark sent you. Okay, Scott, we are back and we're entering the last lap. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick Lips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Learn how to do it yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? Yeah, I I make it a personal habit to
0: enable the success of others. I find that when that happens, it always comes back around.
1: Oh, yeah. Ah, Wonderful. Wonderful thought. Now, how about a resource? There are tons of great resources out there, but is there one in particular you'd like to share?
0: Oh, of course. And that's the BMW Car Club of America. You know, if you're a BMW driver or owner, this is an organization you really need to check out. But even if you're not a BMW driver, but if you're interested in racing and design, you want to come to the Foundation Museum in Greer, South Carolina, uh, and check out Heroes of Bavaria. These 22 race cars we have on hand are fantastic.
1: Absolutely. I've been a proud member of the BMW Club for almost 20 years now. So, uh, We had a lot of people from the club as guests here on the show. They include Frank Paddock, who's the executive director of the BMW Club. Setch Carlson, head of the BMW Roundel Magazine. Boris Sedd, who's raced BMW cars. Mike Renner, who's the head of BMW Northwest Performance Driving School. Manfred Sharmack, owner of BMW Northwest. Bobby Rahal, with ties to BMW racing and dealership. So all sorts of people related to BMW cars have been guests here on Cars Yeah. Great group of people. Wonderful, nice people very helpful and by the way mark if you're if you're a club member
0: and this is for your listeners as well this archive this collection this forty five thousand items we have in this building all belong to you cool we're just here to maintain this for you and to make sure that it's kept in good condition but um if you're a member of the club this all belongs to you very nice
1: now if you could have a drink with anyone in the automotive field living or deceased who would it be I'm going to
0: give you two, Sir Jackie Stewart and David Hobbs.
1: Ah, yes. (laughs) Two guys I really want to get on this show, too. I got the pleasure of sitting next to Jackie Stewart at the Pebble Beach Concord during the time when the uh, cars were rolling over the the winner's platform there and got to talk to him at length and what a nice guy. And Mr. Hobbs, yeah, he's another one I'd love to get. I've had Lee Diffie on the show. Of course, those guys all work together in the F1 commentating booth. But uh, I'll get David on the show one of these days and Sir Jackie as well. Now, how about a book? Is there a book you've read that you think our listeners should read?
0: There are. Actually, I'm going to give you two again. Um, First would be Daring Drivers and Deadly Tracks. This was uh, written um, with Brian Redman and Jim Mullen. Mm. Jim uh, is a fantastic writer and got together with Brian to write about Brian's early career and the just unbelievable risks that these guys took, Mm. right? Um, And what's great about this book is that the writing does an excellent job at really making that risk come alive for you. Just really, really well done. So Daring Drivers, Deadly Tracks, Brian Redman and Jim Mullen would be one. And then a friend of mine, George Levy, came out with a fantastic book, Can-Am's 50th Anniversary, um, flat out with America's Racing Series. He did that um, with a photographer, Pete Biro, who you probably know and may have even had on the show. Yep. Um, Took a lot of great photos of the Can-Am cars back in that day. And that book has done really well. It's been, at least at some points, number one on the uh, Amazon list for automotive history. So Can-Am 50th Anniversary, George Levy would be my other one.
1: Yes, both George and Pete have been guests here on Cars. Yeah, they were here to promote that very book. Great books recommended. And of course, Brian Redmond, he was a guest here on the show. In fact, I had him on the show when it was his birthday and he sang a birthday song, which was kind of fun. So uh, you have to go back and listen to that
0: one. <laughs> He's a great guy.
1: Yeah, it was hilarious. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these great resources Scott has been so kind to share on his show notes page at com. Just type Scott Dishman. In the search bar, and that page will pop up. All right, we're up to the checkered flag here, Scott, and this last question could be a bit of a doozy. If you could have only one very cool collector car in your garage, but money's no object, don't worry about that. I'm writing the check today. What would that vehicle be, and more importantly, why?
0: Well, you better make sure you got plenty of ink in that pen of yours. Okay, okay. So, again, this is an answer that can change over time, right? But I am looking at chassis 2275-986, a... um, BMW CSL race cars, number 59. This is the overall Daytona winner in 1976. What I love about this car is that uh, there's a few things. Number one, if I'm going to keep one collector car the rest of my life, I have to be able to work on it myself, right? Mm -hmm. It can't be so um, advanced that I can't really understand it or work on it myself. And this car... Feels accessible to me. We've got it in the building now. We've gone over just every inch of it, and uh, we love it, and it seems to be accessible. And yeah, sure, yeah, I need a couple skills and maybe a, an old codger to work on it with me, but I don't have to send it out every time I want to work on it. Number two, the thing just looks... It's just badass, right? Yeah. Those CSL Batmobiles back in the, the mid-70s. And this car was one of, uh, I think there were 19 made by BMW. And this one was part of a group of cars that are really going to introduce BMW Motorsport from the new organization of BMW of North America. Because before that had been kind of a Hoffman thing, right? But BMW of North America um, was formed, and they wanted some special race cars to introduce the motorsport public in the U.S. to these cars. And this was one of them. 3.5 liter inline six, about 500 horsepower, seriously badass, uh, but also drivable, right? So it's a race car. It is looks fantastic. Um, it's simple enough for me to be able to work on it, but it's accessible from the driver's seat as well, right? It's something that you can get out and really get on the track and have some major fun with. And the current owner of this car, by the way, who's a, a donor and a friend, um, does exactly that.
1: Wow. What a car. Uh. Fantastic! I love that. I love the, all the reasons behind it as well. Well, Scott, you have taken us on an awesome ride today. I knew you would, and I've really enjoyed sharing your world with the Car Show listeners. And I want to thank you for being here. Please give us one parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off down the racetrack in that BMW CSL.
0: <laughs> well, I think this this um, thought is really applied to my life, and I, I think it can apply to others as well. But it really has to do. Coming back to that idea of serving others, right? What's been transformational for me is finding a way to combine my own interests and my own passions with the service of others. And that's what's so exciting about the position that I'm in now. So I think if we all take what turns us on in this life and what we're interested in and find a way to serve others at our highest level possible, the rewards just start falling into uh, into our lap at that point, And things really start to feel different. And you find that your motivations and your um, your passions are just really uh, alighted by all of that. So serve others and stick close to your passions would be the best advice that I can give.
1: There it is, listeners. That is the secret to a wonderful, spectacular life. Absolutely. What's the best way for our listeners to follow along with you and what you're doing there at BMW?
0: BMW is the website. You can also find us on Facebook, um, and we are located in Greer, South Carolina. Um, give us a call, 864-329-1919. Come
1: out and see this collection. Absolutely. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything Scott has shared on his show notes page at CarsYeah.com. Just type Scott Dishman into the search bar. You'll find links. If you get out to uh, Greer, anywhere near there, stop by this facility Check out what they've got to share. If you're a BMW fan or driver or owner, join the club. I've been a member for a long time. Absolutely spectacular group of people and all the nice benefits you get from being a member are worth every penny you spend. Scott, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road.
0: Hey, Mark, congratulations to you for just an unbelievable run with this show. It's just incredible how many people you've brought into this little world of yours, and I'm grateful to be included. Thank you.
1: Ah, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered, commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah!